This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. Good evening, everyone. Good to see you all here tonight. I am uh, inclined to make a few introductory remarks First of all, before we get into the subject, some introductory remarks that have to do with the material in general. Before I do that, however, the material I'm going to be able to give you in these classes tonight and the following three Tuesday nights is a very sketchy treatment of the subject There is far, far more material in scripture than I am able to bring in these class periods. I have tried in the outline that was handed out to you to give you the essential ideas. And I would appreciate it very much if in the course of the week between this class and the next one, You study the material rather closely in the outline and look up all the scriptural passages that are mentioned in the outline. Read them, ponder them. Perhaps you will even be able to do that in your devotions. And write down as well any ideas that occur to you, any questions that may come into your minds or anything that you think should be discussed in this class, which I have omitted. If you bring them up in class, I'd be more than happy to deal with anything with which you want to uh, discuss. In the second place, I am responsible for this subject. The committee asked, for some suggestions, and I suggested this topic. I did that chiefly because of the fact that it seems to me that now that I have reached and gone beyond my three score and 10 years, I'm beginning to understand a little bit better the biblical doctrine of suffering, especially in the last perhaps 10 years or so Some of the truths of scripture have come to my attention in a rather startling way, ideas that I had not considered. Many, many things, many experiences have contributed to the preparation of a series of speeches on this subject. Any minister, of course, who is busy in the Church of Christ and takes his pastoral work seriously contends almost on a weekly basis with the problems that suffering brings to the hearts and minds of the people of God. Looking back on my own pastoral ministry, and trying to recall some of the problems that God's people brought to my attention in the course of the many sufferings which they experienced, I did not always have an adequate answer. And indeed, 
Sometimes I fear my answer was not only inadequate, but probably a very little help to them. The problems of suffering are many, great, and important. So over 50 years of pastoral work have contributed to these lessons which I hope to bring to your attention in the next four weeks. But not only the pastoral work of a minister of the gospel, but one's own personal experiences, one's own personal trials and afflictions, which even a pastor has, and perhaps a pastor more than anyone else. He struggles with the trials through which the Lord leads him. He does not always have the answers. He does not always know the direction he ought to go. He struggles with the temptations that are present with him. And yet, for the sake of the flock of Jesus Christ, he's got to come to terms with his own personal crosses that God calls him to bear. He cannot minister effectively to the sheep unless he has resolved his own problems. That's not easy even for a pastor. And the fact of the matter is that again and again, the pastor in his search for the right answers to life's afflictions and sufferings drives him to scripture and a continual meditation on the truths of the scriptures in this regard inform him mightily of what the Lord himself says about these things in his word. I must also express that my indebtedness to Martin Luther, whose student I have been now since 1965 when I first began to teach church history. Interestingly enough, I still find it profitable to sit at Luther's feet. And perhaps one of his writings more than any other has pointed me to an extremely important solution to what we consider to be the problem of suffering. I refer to the theses that Luther drew up in preparation for a disputation with his fellow monks in Heidelberg in the spring of 1518, less than a half a year after he nailed his theses on the chapel door of the church of Wittenberg. In those theses he drew up for a disputation with his fellow monks, he pointed me to an aspect of sufferings that we do not often consider. 
namely the relationship between the sufferings of this present time and the suffering of the Lord Jesus. The crucial and central importance of the cross. I'm not referring now in any kind of a special way to the words of the Lord, they have hated me, they will also hate you. Or, when ye suffer for righteousness' sake, or suffer for my name's sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad. I do not refer specifically to that, although that's part of it. But the relationship between all our sufferings of every sort and the centrality of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. That lesson that I learned at Luther's feet has remained with me since I first discovered it after a careful study of those theses that Luther prepared. He understood suffering probably better than any of us here tonight. And so there are many, many things that contributed to what I have to say to you tonight. Many personal experiences, many aspects of my pastoral work, many subjects that were brought up and brought to my attention by the reading of others, and above all, a deeper understanding gradually over the years, sometimes after laborious work of what Scripture teaches. If you would ask me what books of the Bible influenced your thinking on these subjects more than any other, I would have to mention three. In the first place, the book of Job. I think it was only the last time that my wife and I went through the book of Job in our family devotions that I began to understand a bit of what that book was really all about and the profound truths concerning suffering which that book gave to us by infallible inspiration. The second book is the book of Psalms. There is probably no single book in the Bible that deals more with the subject of suffering than the Psalms. That's interesting in its own right, because the Psalms are a spiritual biography of the people of God. Every child of God has writ large in the book of Psalms a biography, a spiritual biography of his own life. And what is impressive about the book of Psalms is that in the writing of this spiritual biography of all the people of God, there is an emphasis, an unmistakable emphasis on suffering. 
The Psalms which speak of it are too numerous for me to mention. That indicates and indicated to me that the scriptures are intent on impressing upon our minds the fact that suffering is, if I may use that expression, the normal lot of the people of God. Freedom from suffering is abnormal, unusual, to the point of being frightening. Something I wish to elaborate on a bit more at a later time. Brings to mind one of God's sheep many years ago who came to me very distressed and said, Prof, I'm afraid I'm not a child of God. And when I asked her, she was a mother, when I asked her what made her think that, she said, surprisingly, the Bible teaches that God loves every son and daughter and reveals his love in chastening them. She was referring to Hebrews 12 and a quotation from Proverbs. God chastens every son and daughter whom he loves. And she said to me, I'm not chastened. I have an easy life. We have all the money that we need and far more than we can spend. We have a beautiful home. We have a new car. We have children. We have children who walk in the Lord's ways. Our marriage is a happy marriage. There is not a cloud on the horizon. And if the Lord chastens every son whom he loves, and I'm not chastened, then it must be that I'm not one of his children. That was indeed a difficult problem. She understood, she understood at least this much, that suffering for the people of God is normal. It is unusual and, as I say, somewhat frightening when God's chastening hand is not upon us. As it was, the Lord led her to, through extraordinarily difficult ways only a few years down the line, to the point where her troubles were so severe they drove her out of the church. That was sad. As much as she was puzzled by her lack of chastisement, she was equally puzzled and overwhelmingly distressed by the fact of chastisement when it came. Suffering has always been a problem. It's a problem in the world. 
The world really doesn't know what to do with suffering. It finds it difficult to explain it. It has little in the way of comfort to bring to those who suffer. It really has nothing to say because the solution to the puzzle escapes them. And so if one is an unbeliever, he tends to fall back foolishly and unbelievingly on evolutionism. All the sufferings of this present time, he says, are simply due to our animal ancestry. We have not succeeded in escaping entirely the problems and troubles and sufferings that characterized the world of animals prior to the emergence of man in the evolutionary process. The imperfections that still cling to man because he has his origins among the beasts are the explanation for his sufferings. Nature is red in tooth and claw, bloodied, brutal, in its quest for survival. And some of the lingering effects of that remain with man today. I just finished reading a book a month or two ago on the study that is being done on the DNA molecule, the molecule that determines genetically the whole of our physical makeup. And the author of this book, brilliant in his own field, but bitterly hateful of the Christian faith, confidently said, that with the discovery and mapping of the DNA molecule and the genetic structure of man, man will now be able to manipulate his genetic structure so that he can escape the horrors and imperfections of his animal ancestry and improve the human race to the point where all the problems that afflict man will be solved and we will have a trouble-free, supremely happy, totally joyful life here in the world as evolutionism produces the perfect man. It's very common in the thinking of today's scientific world that manifests itself especially in the sphere of medicine, medical technology. And I must admit that some of the advances in medical technology trouble me deeply, not so much because they come unexpectedly, but because of the fact that the people of God themselves are inclined to put their trust in medical science and 
medical technology to solve the problem of suffering. And they hasten to their doctors, not just simply to do what is required of them before the face of God with respect to taking care of their bodies, but they become angry when medical science has not yet produced a cure for their disease or has not yet Develop the science that will enable them to have children when the Lord has been pleased not to give them children. And so they are willing, God's people I mean, are willing to allow these medical scientists addicted to evolutionism perform their sometimes dreadful experiments on the Christian in the hopes that medical science can cure whatever sufferings God is pleased to send. I understand there is a delicate balance there between our obligation to take care of ourselves and committing the sin of Asa, king of Judah, who trusted, the Bible tells us, in physicians for which he was cursed. Nevertheless, the line can be drawn. I have a book on my shelf in my library on medical ethics, written by Christian authors. Every one of the Christian authors who writes an essay in that book hails the advances of medical science and the tremendous powers which medical science has in its hands to bring about a life of freedom of disease and imposes upon the Christian the solemn obligation to follow these methods and walk in the paths that the scientists map, except one, the last chapter in the book. And an amazing chapter that startles one after reading all these other Christian scientists' opinions. One comes upon one author who says, we will never be free from suffering. We ought not to try to be free from suffering. Suffering is sent by God. God chastises those whom he loves. It is our obligation to remember that in all our frantic search for cures of our diseases. That's the world influenced, influencing the people of God in very significant ways, but that's the world. In today's evangelical circles, there is another error which is prominent. There is the error of the so-called prosperity gospel. I was dumbfounded when I looked on the internet after typing into my Google search engine the words prosperity gospel 
that there were something like 75,000 websites on the internet that dealt with the prosperity gospel in all of its forms. The essence of the prosperity gospel is, of course, that the Christian must, if he really believes in Christ, and if he really gives himself over completely to the care of Christ, expect in this life nothing but happiness, riches, wealth, freedom from sickness, trouble, pain, and all manner of suffering. I have a quote here. This quote appeared on the internet. It's a quote from Joel Osteen, who is called the Prosperity Gospels cover boy. Time Magazine ran a feature, Time. No, I think it was U.S. News and World Report, if I remember correctly. Ran a cover article on Joel Osteen's philosophy. Here is what Joel Osteen says. He is, by the way, a televangelist, not only but the minister of one of these huge congregations numbering some eight to 10,000 members. We are all about building people up. We're all about helping people reach their full potential. We don't push some kind of religion. All we push is joy and peace and victory through Jesus Christ. Our message every single week is through faith in God, you can live an overcoming life of victory. I believe that's the message this generation needs to hear. We've heard a lot about the judgment of God and what we can't do and what's going to keep us out of heaven. But it's time people start hearing about the goodness of God, about a God that loves them, a God that believes in them, a God that wants to help them, and a God that if you put your trust in him, will make you happy. That's a brief summary of the prosperity gospel. It's very common. Hundreds of books have been written about it. Its message is this. We ought to expect and have a right to expect that this life that we live here in the world is one of unalloyed joy supreme happiness, financial riches, freedom from sickness and disease, stable marriages, healthy children, and on and on. That's the heart of the prosperity gospel. All of this has its impact, too, on the people of God. We know better and if we are put before the question, we are ready to admit that this is a foolish expectation. The scriptures, after all, speak sufficiently frequently of suffering to remind us 
that such a life as described by the prosperity gospeliers is never to be ours. And yet at the same time, there is something deep inside of us, something latent in the very center of our being, which says, I have a right to a good life, to a happy life, to a prosperous life, free from sickness, free from pain, free from trouble. That this is deep down. Our thinking is evident from the question that a pastor repeatedly faces when he comes to minister to God's people in suffering. Why, pastor? Why? Why me? Why does God do this to me? What is it in my life that makes God turn against me in this way and lead me through such dark and difficult ways? Why? Why not? Why not face that question? Why shouldn't he? Do you deserve better? Has he promised you something better? You must not ask why these things come upon you. You must say, why not? In moments of prosperity, in moments of health, and moments of happiness. That points to the fact, and this is one point that if you forget everything I say in these classes, please remember this. The prosperity gospelers do not present the biblical picture of the life of the child of God in the world. You read the scriptures. You read them from Genesis and ponder the grief and agony that Adam and Eve must have suffered when Cain killed Abel, the son of the promise. Through Jacob's plaintive cry, Few and many have been the days of my pilgrimage, and I have not attained in my life to the life of my fathers. All these things are against me. Read the Psalms. Read Jesus' own instruction in the Gospels. Read the epistles. And without fail, the scriptures hold before us that the truth of the matter is quite different. The normal the usual path of the child of God must be described in terms of suffering. That's normal. The Dutch have their own unique expression for that. The Dutch expression is elk huis heefsen kruis. Every home bears its own cross. Jesus describes discipleship in unusually unattractive ways. 
You recall the time when passing through Samaria, some eager, gung-ho, would-be disciple came rushing up to Jesus and in a burst of wild enthusiasm said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. What were the sobering words of the Lord? The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's discipleship. And when the next man came with tears streaming down his cheeks and said to the Lord, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me go home first to bury my father, because it is, after all, part of Hebrew tradition to take care of one's parents, Jesus, in a seemingly cold way, said to him, Let the dead bury their dead. Come thou and follow me. And when that one probably youthful disciple came to Jesus and said, Lord, I'm willing to be your disciple, but let me go home and say farewell to my friends. By which he meant, of course, let me have one more party, one more good time with my buddies, one last fling before I commit myself to the demands of the kingdom, Jesus said. He that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Why not? This is discipleship. Cross-bearing, self-denial, suffering. That's the way of a disciple. That's the point that we have to remember. Your reaction to what the scriptures say may be, I'm not at all, I'm not altogether sure I want to attend these classes because Prof. Hanko is a pessimist if I ever saw one. All he can talk about is suffering and pain and distress and anxiety and affliction and trial. I, I don't have to hear that stuff. I want some upbeat stuff that makes me feel good inside. Well, I'm not a pessimist and I'm not a crepe hanger, but I ask this question in all seriousness, which you and I have to ask of ourselves as well. What is true happiness? We get it all wrong. I know. I do too. In these days of affluence and prosperity, when all of us have a life of plenty, we keep thinking to ourselves that somehow, in some way, happiness is tied up in this life. That happiness is to be found in a new home. That happiness is to be found in a good job where the salary is high. That happiness is to be found in a new car. That happiness is to be found in freedom from pain, freedom from disappointment, freedom from trouble, freedom from anxiety. No. That's where we go wrong. And if we really commit ourselves to that system of belief, then everything gets out of whack. Nothing makes any sense anymore. 
Then you're going to sit there with Asaph in Psalm 73 and bemoan the fact that the wicked have all their heart's desire. While I wash my hands in innocency, for I am chastened every morning anew. Then nothing makes sense. The great optimism, the great joy, the only true joy and happiness there is for the Christian in this world is something which is not in any way related to the circumstances of life or the possessions which God may give to us, but has all of its source and all of its object in the joy of the salvation which God has freely given to us in Jesus Christ and continues to give us in the whole pathway of our life and will give to us in its fullest and most glorious measure when our pilgrimage is over and we arrive at our eternal destination. There lies happiness. There lies joy. Nowhere else. And to understand suffering, we must understand that first of all. I do not mean to say by this, and we're going to be talking about that at some length, I do not mean to say by, by this that suffering itself cannot be a reason for joy. We are adjured by the scriptures solemnly to make it such. Blessed are ye when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which went before you. And how many times does not Paul in his epistle solemnly lay down for us the calling, be thankful in all things. I recall one time several years ago when I was struggling with a sermon for Thanksgiving Day, and dealing with one of those texts that admonish the people of God to be thankful in all things, I thought to myself, boy, am I ever glad that the Bible puts it the way it does, thankful in all things. Because no matter what circumstances of life I may be in, I'm still able to be thankful for salvation, and for the blessing of God, and for his daily gifts. But then I thought to myself, you better look this up a little bit more closely and see once if in any other part of scripture that little word in is not substituted by the word for. And I must admit that in my foolishness, I hoped sincerely I would not find such a text where the scriptures tell us to be thankful for all things. I said to myself, that's reaching too high. I'll never be able to convey that to the people of God. Probably the scriptures don't say that. 
but they do. And you can look it up in Ephesians. Oh yes, be thankful in all things. But be thankful for all things. And after a moment's reflection, of course, I realized that that was completely in keeping with the whole of the scriptures because all things work together for your good. But it was a hard and bitter pill to swallow. And it took me many hours of wrestling to persuade myself that this was indeed what Scripture tells us to do. That's optimism. That's true joy. That's, I know, the top of the ladder that brings us almost to the portals of heaven. But that's the calling of Scripture, and that's the injunction which God lays upon his people. Now, at this point, I must introduce to you the subject of sovereignty very briefly. The next point that I want to bring up very briefly is the matter of God's sovereignty and suffering. I think that we really, as Protestant Reformed people have very little trouble with this. But I would remind you of the fact that the truth of God's absolute sovereignty is believed by almost no one anymore in our day. I have a quote here in the outline from William Sloan Coffin, who was pastor at the time in Riverside Church in New York City. He was commenting in his sermon on a mother who drowned her children because of a love affair by running her car into a lake with the children inside of it. This is what he said, and this is a quote. Nothing so infuriates me as the incapacity of seemingly intelligent people to get it through their heads that God doesn't go around the world with his fingers on triggers, his fists around knives, his hands on steering wheels. That was his rather graphic and emphatic way of denying the fact that God had anything to do with this tragedy. Now, in a certain sense of the word, of course, William Sloan Coffin was correct. God does not go around the world with his fingers on triggers, his fists around knives, and his hands on steering wheels. Nevertheless, God is in control of his world, and the fingers that pull triggers are created and moved by him. The hands that clutch knives are created and moved by him. And the steering wheels that drive cars with children in them to, into lakes are indeed hands 
that he has formed and that he governs. At the time of the Twin Towers tragedy in New York City, the so-called 9-11 tragedy, I heard that Larry King Live had a program planned in which he was going to discuss with three clergymen the implications, the theological implications of this tragedy in New York City. It was the one time and the only time that I ever watched Larry King Live. I'm not even sure if I have the name of his program right, but it, as I recall it, that was it. He had there a Protestant cleric, a Jewish rabbi, and a Roman Catholic priest. And he put the question to them, was God in control of the terrorists who flew these planes of American Airlines into the Twin Towers in New York City? And they stumbled over each other in their haste to deny that God had anything to do with it at all. That it was totally outside of his control. And any notion that God was sovereign in this respect had to be repudiated as fiercely as it could possibly be. Larry King apparently is nobody's fool. So Larry King put this question to them. You three men profess to believe in God. Is it possible to have a conception of God without having in your mind a God who is in control, total control of his own world. They were speechless. They didn't know what to say. They sat there with a mouthful of teeth. They made fools of themselves. They had handed them on a silver platter the Perfect opportunity to give testimony to the truth of God's sovereignty. And they couldn't do it. It was so embarrassing that Larry King, after a snide remark or two, abandoned that line of questioning. The only thing they would concede, these three clergymen, was that God's participation in the event was limited to helping rescue the few that were saved from this Holocaust. To come a little closer to home, I went to school in my college days with a man who was from a Reformed church in Minnesota near our Edgerton congregation. I knew him well, but he was a brilliant man, and he went on to great intellectual heights till he became professor of philosophy in one of the most prestigious universities in the country, Yale University, where he held the chair of philosophy. He lost a son in a mountain climbing accident Never mind now the fact that the sun was climbing the mountain on the Lord's Day. 
And he wrote a book about it. And the gist of the book is simply this. It is impossible for any genuinely reformed person to say that God had a hand in this tragedy. That's a repudiation, a blatant repudiation from the pinnacle of learning of the only truth that makes any sense at all out of suffering. There is no solution to the problem of suffering, and there is no teaching of Scripture on the subject except it be based on the truth of God's sovereignty. God sends suffering. That's the most basic point that I can make. I'm not going to belabor it. If we do not believe that, if we cannot cling to that, if that does not find a place in the deepest recesses of our hearts, we're finished with these classes. Do you understand that? We don't have anything more to say. Then everything is up for grabs. Everything is subject to fickle fate. There is no solution to the problems of the suffering of life. There's nothing to say to one dying of cancer. There's nowhere to bring one who is beset by severe trials and afflictions. Better to keep our mouths shut and simply bear as best we can the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. The sovereignty of God. My dear fellow saints, that's the key. Everything starts there. I want to call your attention to one text which I have used once in a while at a particularly tragic funeral found in, in Psalm 61. A text that has meant a lot to me personally, text which I have used in pastoral work repeatedly. Psalm 61, hear my cry, O Lord, Attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. That doesn't mean, let me say that for a moment, that doesn't mean that the psalmist, probably David, the psalmist was somewhere far, far away from the land of Canaan when he says, from the end of the earth I will, will I cry unto thee. What he means is that I could just as well be on the end of the earth rather than standing by thy sanctuary because in the greatness of my suffering and pain 
You, O God, are far, far away from me. Hear my cry, O God. Maybe I cry from the end of the earth, for thou art beyond my hearing. But I will cry to thee nevertheless, when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's sovereignty. You really have to appreciate the Hebrew here. The Hebrew has it just a little bit different. The Hebrew says, lead me to the rock that is too high for me. And the figure is that the psalmist is caught on the stormy seas of time where he is beaten by wild billows and all but overwhelmed with the storms of trouble and affliction. And God seems far away, but his prayer is this. There is a rock. To that rock I will be led, for there I will find a hiding place. But, says the psalmist, that rock is too high for me. That is, it extends up beyond sight, hidden, the top of it hidden, far, far above the clouds, so that I cannot see the top nor understand the greatness and majesty of the rock. That's the truth of sovereignty. The psalmist expresses it a little different in Psalm 77. Thy way is in the sea, O God, mid mighty waters deep and broad. None understood but God alone. To man thy footsteps were unknown. The rock is too high. The sovereignty of God as it touches upon my life, is beyond my comprehension, far beyond my understanding. But if it were not that that rock is too high for me, I would not be able to find a refuge in it. The very impossibility of knowing the mysterious and wonderful ways of God makes that a rock in which I can find shelter and safety in the storms of life. That's our starting point. We believe in the sovereignty of God. Now, I have a section here on Roman numeral two on the second page, different forms of suffering. Let me say before I forget that I had intended to finish this tonight, different forms of suffering and discuss with you persecution. And next week, the Lord willing, we're going to talk about the doctrine of suffering in the book of Job and in the Psalms, which are found on pages three and four and five. And then the third week we're going to talk about the purpose of suffering and chastisement 
and the other expressions and figures which Scripture uses to make plain why God's people suffer. And then the last week, the Lord willing, we're going to talk about suffering with Christ, which I consider to be kind of the uh, climax and high point of these lessons. But we have a little bit time yet, so let me talk briefly about the different kinds of suffering. I want to do this because there are some things that we are very much inclined to forget in this connection. Before I do that, or in connection with that, I must remind you that the scriptures teach that all the sufferings which men endure, whether regenerate or unregenerate, elect or reprobate, believers or unbelievers, all suffering is emphatically judgment. Scriptures make that very clear. Judgment. The word judgment in Scripture, however, has a variety of uses. In the first place, embedded in that word judgment is the idea of the holiness and justice and righteousness of God. God is the creator and sustainer of the creation. He rules sovereignly in the creation. He is holy beyond description. His holiness is a brilliant light before which the angels cover their faces with their wings, Isaiah 6. His holiness is of such a kind that he cannot abide sin. His holiness itself inevitably, by its very nature, destroys sin. When sin or the sinner comes in contact with that holiness of God, it is burned in an instant as the wings of a moth are burned when it comes too close to the flame of a candle. That's the implication of judgment, first of all. In the second place, the word judgment in Scripture implies that God passes his approval or disapproval on every act of man. He judges what man does, just as a judge decides the innocence or guilt of a prisoner in the dock, God passes judgment on every man and on every deed. We'll have to come back to that in in a slightly different connection. But there is not a moment in a man's life when God is not passing his sentence upon the man. Not only from his throne in heaven, the, the throne of his justice in heaven, but in the consciousness of the sinner. 
no matter who he is. God passes sentence upon every man. That's judgment. In the third place, the word judgment is used in Scripture as not only the sentence which God pronounces upon every man and upon every deed of man, but the sentence which is executed. Hell for the wicked. Heaven for the good. That's judgment too. Don't forget that the scriptures teach, however you want to put it now, that the judgment of God comes on the people of God too. Peter is explicit in his first epistle, chapter 5. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begin at the house of God, what shall the end of the ungodly be? When we suffer because of the difficulties and trials and temptations of our way, we endure the judgment of God. In the fourth place, and here is something that I will have to speak about a little later in our last class. All judgment upon the wicked and the righteous, the regenerate and the unregenerate, the elect and the reprobate, is executed through the cross of Jesus Christ on Calvary. That's true in the first place because the one question, the one fundamental question than which there is none other which God will ask of every man, woman, and child in the judgment day is this. What did you do with Christ? That's the question. That's the question which every man will have to answer. What did you do with Christ? The heathen, those that never heard the gospel, as well as everyone else, will be confronted with that question. And on the basis of their answer, their sentence will be pronounced. All judgment is through the cross. Did not Jesus himself say on the eve of his suffering and death, Now is come the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. He was going to the cross. That was the judgment of the world. But at the same time, because the judgment of God is always, as it were, funneled through the cross in the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is quite a different judgment that he pronounces upon those for whom Christ died. And by the miracle of the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the judgment that comes upon the elect is innocence. 
righteousness. No sin, no guilt. Heaven and glory. But judgment for all that. And we must receive the sufferings of this present time in that way. If we do not understand that all our sufferings in this world are God's judgments upon us, or let me put it bluntly, if we lived in a sinless world, if Adam had never sinned and never fallen, there would be no suffering in this world. There would be no anguish, no pain, no disappointment. All would be unalloyed joy. All would be perfection. All would be happiness. But it isn't. It isn't for the people of God either. Because God judges sin. And whatever now we may say about the judgment of God which he pronounces upon his people through Jesus Christ, it's judgment for all that. When Abraham was pleading the cause of Lot, when God told him that Sodom and Gomorrah were about to be destroyed, what was Abraham's prayer? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so it is. And so each one of us, in our own sorrows and pains and moments of trial, must say, shall not the judge of all the earth do right for me? Of course. How can he do any different? We all know, of course, that Suffering comes about upon the wicked and the righteous alike through the natural calamities that God sends as he brings his judgment upon a sin-cursed world. Droughts and famines, tornadoes, earthquakes, hailstorms, and all the rest. A tornado is not a respecter of persons. A tornado does not whip and wind its way around the homes of the righteous and leave the, those homes standing. We all know that. All the sufferings of disease and sickness, congenital illnesses of every kind, also come upon the righteous and the wicked alike. We don't have to go into any detail about that at all. What is striking, what is unusually striking, and what hits one first of all like a slap in the face is Scripture's insistence that the sufferings of the people of God are many, many more and greater in severity than those of the wicked. That comes as a surprise to God's people. Are not they the ones whom God loves? Are not they the ones for whom Christ died? Are not they the ones who are the special objects of God's favor? Is it not God's purpose to make them happy? How then is it possible under any circumstances to say, as the psalmist says in Psalm 34, as we read and sang a few moments ago. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And the psalmist does not mean to say 
Well, the afflictions of the unrighteous are many, and the afflictions of the righteous are also many. He means exactly to say the afflictions of the righteous are many more and of greater severity than anything which the ungodly know. Talk about prosperity gospel. Talk about receiving Christ into your life and having happiness and joy and riches and wealth and freedom from disease. No, the testimony of scripture is not only that suffering is the norm for the people of God, but that suffering is greater, more intense, more bitter, more severe than it ever is for the ungodly. I call your attention to a few passages. Psalm 34, 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Asaph, Psalm 73, he was puzzled by exactly this idea. He looked at the wicked and he said, as a general rule, the wicked have it so much easier than the people of God. They have no bands in their death. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have all that heart could wish. While here I sit washing my hands in innocence, chastened every morning. My lot in this life is not only one that I share with the wicked in the sufferings of this present time, but are far greater, far worse than anything which the wicked know. Or listen to this complaint of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 12. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. Yet, you feel the force of this, don't you? I admit, I admit, O God, that thou art righteous in all that thou doest. But, but, let me talk with thee of thy judgments. I have a problem that I want to discuss. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Where are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root, they grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins, but thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. That's the complaint of Jeremiah. Psalm 37, in a long, marvelous psalm, we are warned repeatedly that when the child of God confronts the reality of the prosperity of the wicked and looks at his own relatively sad estate, he must not be envious. He must not wish that he were on the side of those who prosper. He must be content with the way in which the Lord leads him when that way is usually one of far more suffering than the wicked ever have to endure. You ask, why do the people of God suffer in this life? The answer is this because it is God's will that their sufferings be a whole lot more and a whole lot more severe than the sufferings of the wicked 
can ever be. But we must quit for tonight. I want to come back to this briefly next time. There is good reason for this. So we will do that. Before we close with prayer, let's sing one more song. Psalm 77. I don't know what Psalter uh, number that is. We'll find out in a jiffy. Yes, 210 or 211. <clears throat> I think we'll take 211 because I want to sing verse 3. Will you stand and uh, we'll sing 1 and 3 of 211. Father, it is indeed true as we have sung together, also in our own lives. Thy way is in the sea, O God, mid mighty waters deep and broad, none understood but God alone, to man thy footsteps were unknown. But safe thy people thou dost keep, almighty shepherd of thy sheep. We believe this. In the storms of life, 
when the waters all but overwhelm us and we cry out from the ends of the earth, our cry is, lead us to the rock that is too high for us. Thou hast a purpose in all our sufferings, which thou art pleased to send upon us. And that purpose is exactly this, that because of the greatness of our sin and the corruption of our natures, there is no other way to heaven but the way of suffering. For in that way we are sanctified and prepared for glory. When thy hand is upon us, may we in humility submit. May we worship as Job did. May we confess that all these things are our salvation and that presently we shall be with Christ, redeemed in his blood, and able to understand as we look back upon the course and pathway of our life that there was no other way to glory. For always as it was for Christ, so also for us. The way of the cross leads home. Bless what we have discussed tonight. Make us ever more diligent students of the scriptures. Give us faith to believe. And forgive all our unbelief and lack of faith and doubt and anger even at thy ways. Deal tenderly with us we are weak and frail. Strengthen us by the mighty power of grace that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ and carries us on its mighty tide through the weary night of this pilgrimage to the everlasting blessedness of the kingdom of thy Son. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.